Hey everyone, as a heads up, we recorded this before lockdown. So sonically, it sounds great. But if you notice we don't talk about COVID, well, there you go. My guest this week is everyone's favorite watch guy. He's a vintage aficionado. He helped create that Black Bay you love so much. And now he's reintroducing you to the beauty of Mont Blanc watches. But after sitting with him for over an hour, you realize it's never been about the watches at all. It's about the stories. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Davide Chirado, Managing Director of Mont Blanc Watches. Davide and I discuss how learning to tell time was like learning another language, what cars and watches have in common, and why stories, from cartoons to science fiction to watches, have always been at the center of his life. Davide, pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for thanks for coming on the show. Really a pleasure for me too. Thanks. So we're here to talk a lot about um, your life and your career, uh, the, the new watches that have been coming out. But I kind of want to jump back a little bit to the beginning because, um, as as a brand manager, as in a you know, and sometimes a face of a brand, you've gotten to walk along a lot of different journeys and careers of the entire watch world in general. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so I just want to jump to the beginning. Where, where are you from originally? Because you, you said you were Italian. I am 100% Italian. I was born in Torino, Turin. Okay. In the middle of cars, like car designers and uh, car shows at that time in Torino. There yeah. was a fantastic motor show. Now it doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. Oh. But now I live in Geneva. There is a big one in Geneva. So <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so you, yeah, you get to be around cars no matter exactly. what. Exactly. Um, and how, you know, I mean, we won't go through every part of your entire yeah. life, but like, where did watches come in the picture? Because I think something that the entire world owes, the entire watch world owes uh, is t- to Italy. I mean, so many, so much of people have gotten excited about watches again based on the Italians as a whole. And Absolutely. I mean, from vintage to being vintage inspired, I-, I give full credit to the Italians. I, I just am so grateful for them. But where did f- watches come in f- for you in your life? Uh, the very first time was when I was probably, I don't know, four year old, something like that, when my father teach me how to read uh, an analogic uh, uh, time on a watch. Right. And that for me was, uh, I still remember it as a very special moment, both because of uh, uh, sharing between father and son, yeah. but also because he was uh, discovering a new language, like, uh, you know, really getting getting to know a new language, uh, how those two small hands moving were able of telling you time. Yeah. It's Definitely quite mysterious, and uh, I really remember the the excitement uh, and uh, you know the 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 excitement for the discovery of this new code. Uh, it, it was very very powerful. Yeah, so this wasn't a you know a, a digital watch or anything. This was like a wristwatch. No, but uh, you are right to say digital because uh, uh, <laughs> it's it's a good moment to have this uh, this discussion because I'm turning fifty in almost a little bit more than two weeks. So you know, it's a moment where you you look back to your life and right. you start to <laughs> to make uh, an evaluation of what you did. So it's very interesting and definitely uh, fifty years old now means I was born in nineteen. 70 and I'm a kid of the 70s in many different ways yeah. and my first real watch was uh, a Casio a digital one 
Nice. Navy blue with this beautiful LED screen where the, the time was appearing just when you were pushing a button and it was with these nice red LED lights that, that look so much like, a, you know, space uh, f uh, science fiction film from the 70s. Yeah. Uh, and that was my real watch, the, the first one. Oh, wow. And, wait, and how old were you when you got this? Uh, good question. I don't know. Four or five, something like that. Wow. Mm, five, probably. In that case, I, I need to get a watch for my kid. I, yeah. I, <laughs> um, Absolutely, it's it's interesting too because I they you know the Italians really set up um, even the, the digital watches. I mean, I know so many people were in love with Pulsar watches yeah. that were these amazing um, mechanical watches with digital faces. Was yours like that, or was yours just standard quartz? Uh, standard quartz, yeah. Standard quartz, but looking back to it, it really looks like a Star Wars watch. You know? <laughs> Do you still have it? Could, could, could no, unfortunately uh. not. I, I could try to to get it back, but it was really looking like a stormtrooper watch. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Were you into Star Wars too at that time? Uh, yes, immediately. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Inevitably. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you go to you go to school, and what did you study in school? Uh, in school, uh, I studied a um, uh, scientific college. Oh. Um, and then uh, I, in, uh, I, in university, I had a kind of double path. The first one was uh, uh, architecture and design, industrial design. Yeah. At the um, Polytechnic of Torino, which is a very well-known school uh, in Extremely. Italy for that. Yeah. And which is, a cra which is still a crazy place because the... Uh, the the physical premises of the faculty are uh, the a castle from Guarino Guarini in the middle of a beautiful park next to the river. So for someone who studies architecture and design, uh, being able of uh, attending lessons in a castle from centuries back, it's uh, it's really incredible. And um, and after that, I had uh, uh, I attended a business school while I was already starting working. Uh, following lessons as, at night and uh, this matches well who I am because to give you a first uh, information or indication about uh, who I am, yeah. um, I discovered a little bit later on that I have um, a, a brain profile which is a little bit unusual, it's not rare, but a little bit uh, unusual compared to the normal. Normal is predominant right or predominantly left. Right, in which terms means of how very you think. creative or very analytical. Correct. And uh, I'm even, really even. I made different tests to, to spot it. And this explains a little bit my, my, you know, the first stages of my studies and my career because uh, I was trying. One direction I was doing good, the other one I was doing good, and I couldn't understand which one was the good one. Since when I discovered that the fact of being able to do both at the same time was my specific uh, profile. So I did uh, industrial design, very creative, you know, yeah. on one side, and then I felt the business of attending, uh, the, the need of attending a business one to get the more analytical structure business, da da da. And both of them I really enjoyed a lot. And then my career was, uh, you know, trying to discover uh, a little bit one, a little bit the, the other. And then the epiphany was when I realized that I was able of doing both. Jeez. And, and actually this happened when I started to work in watches. And, you know, I, I really pulled back again all my design uh, and architecture studies and how to set up projects and, you know, the very creative side. And... 
the more analytical than and, and being able to do it together is um, is very powerful because uh, you know you develop organically all at the same time and you go very fast and you go very consistent and and very powerful so yeah that was quite interesting well i mean do you feel that because your brain and, and your mind you, you think that way that you have to achieve higher than other people uh this i believe uh, by myself <laughs> before i'm i'm uh, i'm very much challenging myself since uh, i was a kid and i was yeah. almost uh, driven to do things a little bit uh, differently and and perhaps quickly yeah did you have any uh, siblings growing up uh i have a younger brother which okay. is uh, four years uh, younger than me and which is a psychologist so okay interesting <laughs> so a lot of in- intellectuals in the in the Chirata family <laughs> not really intellectuals but you're uh, interested by concepts and yeah. complicated stuff yeah yeah my my brother and i are four years apart too my oh, elder same. brother oh, okay. so we had a lot of um competition between each other in which he was he was very athletic mm-hmm. and doing all sorts of sports while I kind of was more on computers and, you know, what, what, what we, I sit here before you with a gadget in front of my face. Absolutely. <laughs> Cables everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so w- what was your first career in watches? Because, I mean, coming from the, these two different, you know, backgrounds, they, they really do intersect with the watch world. I don't, I don't know if there's any other type of thing that would... that you know blends those two uh worlds so beautifully no indeed uh yeah the, the first encounter with the with watches was a uh, panerai officine panerai mm. beautiful unique uh, italian brand and i extremely yeah i was involved with them at the beginning of 2000 so the powerful exciting years of the fast development of the brand that was uh, to many people the the sort of rebirth of Panerai, right? With uh, uh, with Sly Stallone and the the big powerful watches and the the, the homage to the to the diving world. I absolutely, mean, the heroes uh, with the yeah slow moving Mayale, <laughs> this kind of torpedoes and all the myth that was behind and in terms of design was absolutely yeah. groundbreaking it was uh, people were joking at the time saying it's uh, an alarm clock on the wrist <laughs> and definitely was like 47 mil at the moment where probably average size was 40 was out yeah. of this world but, yeah. but it was incredible because uh, yeah because of that very unique powerful dna uh-huh. uh, which is exactly what uh, all brands should strive for today sure uh it really rocketed at that time was uh it was the brand that uh, that definitely launched the oversized trend and uh, bigger dimensions and and yeah i find also i i, I love japan in one of my uh uh epiphanic experiences was really getting uh, going to japan and knowing japanese and getting into japanese culture and wait wait, I wait. Think you speak japanese no no i don't speak japanese oh, okay. unfortunately i would <laughs> love to speak because i'm always trying to get uh, to buy something on the web in japan you know I, i'm a fisherman and a fly fisherman and uh, i always look for that and uh, it's impossible to do because everything is written in japanese yeah. it's a nightmare if you don't speak the language yeah. you cannot so no, but uh, uh, yeah, I, w- I was speaking about Japan because uh, Panerai has something that is so much Japanese, this wabi-sabi 
concept mm. of his, uh, you know, yes. uh, simplicity and this perfect balance between uh, empty spaces and, and uh, full spaces and in cleanness, perfect readability. It was really something, you know, the, really showing up how much design uh, can be seminal for, uh, for a brand, for, uh, for any brand. You know? Yeah. And so you're at Panerai for a little bit. And yeah. where do you go to after that? And after that, uh, I, as often happened in my life, get uh, in contact with a headhunter who, and I met him without knowing what this was about. Okay. And I discovered that it was Rolex and uh, they were uh, willing to relaunch Tudor and looking so, uh, for someone to, to, mm-hmm. to head this. So I decided to, uh, to make the jump and to go in a project that was uh, basically starting from scratch. So, yeah. you know, rebuilding the full brand, the, the, the product, the design, a little bit of everything. And that, and that was pretty huge because I think that's where I first came into contact with you and, and the fact of like what you were building. I mean, it was yeah. uh, to, to take a brand that has history and start to kind of build that up, which is very much what you're doing with Mont Blanc. Yeah. But, you know, a brand that to many people mean many different things, mm. but you get the opportunity to kind of reinvent a lot of that while still tang- staying true to who that brand is. I mean, the, the, the Tudor launch was unbelievable. It was very powerful, very, very powerful. And uh, I really clearly remember 2010 when, when we presented uh, the first design that, uh, that I developed, the uh, Heritage Chrono. Yeah. And it was really like a, a big storm. I mean, anyone was uh, waiting for, uh, for Tudor coming. And everyone was mind blown by finally the first vintage reinterpretation of the market. So it was very, very powerful. See, yeah, you said vintage reinterpretation. And I mean, I totally agree with you in every way, shape and form. But it's, it's interesting to me because so many people want new, but want old at the same time. <laughs> I, I couldn't. Um, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, because um, uh, that is kind of magic. I'm, I'm, as I told you. <laughs> yeah, I'm into car, and um, when I discovered Morgan, that's exactly what it is. You get, uh, I have a plus four uh, convertible, you know, and you get a car that is still handmade from beginning to the end on the desi- on a design based on 1936. Yeah but done with a contemporary engine so without all the issues and and puzzles that you have with the with a with a vintage car with a real vintage one so you get all the pleasure of uh, the style the design the feeling of uh, old ways of uh, driving with the steering wheel that is vibrating and get into your hands any single bump of, of the road but with a safe uh, engine and with a car that you can really drive uh, whenever you want without having to go to the garage just after two hours of driving <laughs> right. or remaining stuck in the middle stuck in the middle of nowhere and having to you know to call for rescues yeah a, a good friend of mine he is really big into fiats he's mm-hmm. a italian car collector and he him and his dad drove a fiat panda from milan to mongolia Oh, Jesus. That's a long way. Poor <laughs> yeah. <Tour> back. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting. The skeleton is still shouting for pain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, but it's interesting to me because so many people that love cars love watches. I, Absolutely. I, I don't. Why is that? Is it the, the design, the me- 
engineering. But is that uh, the way in which this world is uh, the structure of it is is mirroring one another? You have this magic balance between uh, the external side of it, the mm -hmm. shape, the skin, which mm -hmm. comes with the design of the chassis or the design of the habillage of a watch, and then with this uh, perfect matching with the engine, the mechanical or the micro-mechanical part for the movement, and is the, the perfect balance or the perfect synchronization of these two parts that makes a product absolutely outstanding. Yeah. And love for mechanical object, things that are, you know, working, turning, bumping, you know, beating, uh, that are alive somewhere. Yeah, there's definitely something that a lot of people take pride in, in the idea and concept of, of true human engineering. You know, there, there's yeah. no sort of AI that's behind it. It's, it's pure human ingenuity. It's, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, something, you know, so as you, you go through Tudor, eventually Mont Blanc calls your name. And so how did that happen? Because it's, it's tough to walk away from the crown, right? <laughs> it's very tough. I, I, and, and I put so much of myself into it that it was really a little bit the feeling of, uh, you know, dividing yourself in two and, and having a part that walks away. Yeah. But, uh, and I, I, I'm still very proud and happy for what we did and very happy to see that the brand is continuing to flourishing on the, Good. on the strong asset that we, that yeah. we built at the time. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I decided to, to have a new challenge. I get this, uh, fantastic opportunity to, uh, to join uh, another brand, another story, another incredible DNA. I spotted already the, the Minerva uh, go gold mine that was behind, uh, but a little bit hidden, uh, uh, Mont Blanc. And this for me was a fantastic, the beginning of another fantastic uh, adventure. So you mentioned Minerva and, yeah. and, and I'll, you know, if, if you wouldn't mind explaining that just a little bit to some of the listeners who are familiar with the watch world, but haven't really connected the dots yet. With pleasure, um, Minerva is a fantastic uh, watch brand that was created in 1858, so it's uh, 162 years old. Wow! And uh, which is uh, which always kept quite a small size, so rarity and and really very strong DNA. And basically, to to make um, to make a long story short, is one of the brand together with Oyer that strongly contributed to create what we call today a chronograph. Mm. So for 50 years, uh, all the first half of the 20th century, uh, watchmakers, engineers, uh, developers that work to capture smaller and smaller time frames, working on stopwatches uh, and counters, uh, objects that were even not given the time, really instruments for, for precision, some were the computers of that time, you know. And uh, uh, and going sh uh, more and more precise in the time frames up to the hundred of a second uh, stopwatch in 1916, which uh, at that time was like science fiction. Yeah. And also doing an incredible exploration about uh, timekeeping human performance with uh, um, stopwatches specific per sport. Mm -hmm. So, for example, regattas stopwatches with a retrograde hand with a three time uh, five minutes for the countdown right. or uh, rowing stopwatches to get the row per minute uh, you know so this the, the yeah the the the, the, the roper so the speed of the boat definitely or for football <laughs> yeah <laughs> two times 45 plus 15 break or horse riding uh, racing with the rally timer 
uh, and all of these integrated into uh, our minute uh, second watch allowed to create what we call today a chronograph. So it's really one of the big uh, contributors to to mankind watchmaking history. Wow. And where's the connection with Minerva and Mont Blanc? So Mont Blanc, Richemont, uh, yeah. acquired Minerva in 2006. Ah. Uh, and we we have now two manufacturers, one that is in uh, in Le Locle, in a beautiful 1930 villa, and the other one, which is the original Minerva premises in uh, Villeray, Santime Valley, where we do all our high-end watches with completely handmade and finished movement. Yeah. And where we have uh, the old museum uh, more than 1400 uh, watches uh, hundreds of enamel grand feu uh, stopwatch dial components uh, an incredibly pristine and in detail and uh, and preserved uh, history wow and we are using all of this to really you know we have used all of this in the last year to redesign completely the product collection, taking inspiration from specific watches, design, even color of dials like the pink salmon, for example. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the salmon dial, because that, that was where, you know, because I didn't, I saw Mont Blanc get, you know, in my eyes, relaunched mm-hmm. to, because I think at the time, the, the prestige of the brand wasn't anywhere near what it is right now. You know, it, with, you know, in-house movements, you know, beautiful uh, vintage-inspired designs, you know, like you had said with the salmon dial. And, you know, and obviously you're behind all of it, you know. <laughs> and it was really interesting to me to, to see this. But how is it that you, you know, you design a watch? Because so many people, you know, you, you want to, you know, it's, it's not like you're just sketching out on a sheet of paper. Or, or is it? Uh, no, it's more complicated than that. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, different people are di- have different, very different ways of doing it. Um, I think uh, on time, uh, through the Panerai, Tudor and Mont Blanc experience, I developed yeah. my very own way of doing it, which is a more uh, kind of organic way of doing it, where you you start more from a, a concept, a storytelling, and, and something that you feel is... Uh, very strongly relevant for the zeitgeist in the moment we are living. Mm-hmm. And then where elements coming from the past collide with elements that are working uh, today, that are contemporary. And this this magic mix that brings out something that is really striking. Yeah. Can I just tell you that that's why you're good at what you're doing? Because you didn't say, oh, I use the method of drawing with the hexagraph or something you said storytelling (laughs) and because i think at the end of the day and especially with this podcast in general what gets people excited is stories Stories, it's it's all people want and want to hang on to it's never going to be a multi-touch display or an iphone or anything like that it's what comes from that the the stories about that and so that's really beautiful and i just want to call out like how refreshing that is to me thank you that it's about stories Mm. what you know, just to go on a very quick sidebar here, mm-hmm. what were some of the stories in your life that you had read that maybe helped influence how you're trying to look at stories now? Mm, that's a very good question. Um, I'm always been drawn by stories. You know, when I was a kid, the stories that uh, my parents uh, were telling me before sleeping and uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, everything that I, I've always been very, very curious. So everything that I was reading and and funny enough, I was uh, 
you know, I, I started uh, drawing uh, since I was really, really a small kid. And uh, I was drawing comics. And I was drawing comics, stripes, before I learned writing. So I was... I was uh, drafting stories and keeping, you know, the clouds empty and then asking my mother to fill the dialogues between the, the, the characters into it. So, you know, for, for some special reason, I never really wondered yeah. which one exactly, but stories have always both populated my mind and... Uh, 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 excited me, you know, and uh, when I was a kid, I, I read a lot and all these uh, fantastic adventure books like uh, Emilio Salgari, you know, a, a writer that was from Torino that never moved from Torino and, really? and wrote crazy um, adventures history around the world. Is is by the way the the guy that wrote Sandokan, you know, this uh, very famous story about India and tigers and yeah, um, or uh, you know. Uh, Caribbeans and pirates, and and this guy never moved from a, from a small uh, small city in Italy. So, and I was I was a kid. I read, I was really attracted by you know by these by science fiction. And in the seventies, it was the big big moment Dune? of uh, everything of the dream of uh, space and other yeah. worlds and spacecraft and uh, you know. And we were looking at. Uh, you know, the, the, the 20, 30 years to come as if the world uh, was going to completely come upside down and we were, you know, uh, traveling light speed and, you know, going in other, uh, in other universes. And, and, and by the way, uh, that part, you know, the, the cosmos um, has always uh, really attracted me a lot. I mean, each time I look at the sky, I'm completely hypnotized. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, I really studied. I read all you know, Stephen Hawking there books and all these crazy stories about uh, you know parallel dimensions and and uh, yeah. When I was at school, we were uh, doing mathematics and crazy mathematics, and I went into these uh, guys that were trying to draft uh, multi-dimensional polygons uh, and uh, you know and, and <laughs> the hypercube, like you know a cube that has a fourth or fifth dimension. By the way, most of those guys went completely nuts, went crazy. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we lost them, but all these, you know, uh, original step aside or way of do, you know seeing things with a completely different point of view. I was also incredibly fascinated and black holes and multi-dimensional collection and traveling in time. Who knows? Perhaps there was a little bit of uh, of this. Uh, finally, I, I really believe that the the way of designing that I, I developed has something to do with traveling in time, you know. And yeah. I make jokes in Villeray now, we have so many beautiful wooden cabinets from, you know, 150 years old with drawers that are full of uh, spare parts and dials from the past, and I call them time travel machine. You know? <laughs> Each time you pull a, a, a drawer, you're going back 150 years. So, yeah, these... these uh, channeling in time in space and you know mixing things that come from knowledge and way of doing and styles from the past and the present which at the end comes back to the icon the the, the conceptual dimension of what an icon is yeah. what being iconical what being timeless really means you know um i found this incredibly fascinating and then what i'm trying to do is uh yeah, it's channeling these through time and mixing all the new elements in such a way that you are always relevant and uh, 
And that's exactly how, I mean, how the Porsche 911 uh, has created uh, the success that is still enjoying, you know, keeping key codes, but always bringing always a bit longer, bigger, more powerful, uh, you know, with a new gear shift, with new lights, with new technologies. With, right. But always at the end staying so much uh, um, faithful to yeah. this magic original creation moment that is the magic moment you know when when a, a creative has the first vision of something that moment is a, a holy one you know that, that, that there mm-hmm. is a, a very special purpose that is expressed and a you know a crystal clear vision of why you're he was doing or she was doing that particular thing and if you are able of grabbing that then you understand very quickly what you need to keep and what you need to let down and and change and reach shape uh, refresh with something that is more in the in the in the zeitgeist this episode is brought to you by one of my favorite tailoring companies and brands out in new york Jay Muser. Jake from Jay Muser has been on the show a few times, a very good friend of mine, and has made some excellent pieces of tailoring for me. So much that we actually decided to make something together. It's getting warm out there, right? And I bet you're wondering, how do I look good? I can't wear a sport coat, but I need that extra layer. Well, stay tuned, because Jay Muser and I are working on the shirt jacket to rule them all. It's linen, it's made in Italy, and that's all I can say for now. So stay tuned, folks. This summer, we're going to be dripping in linen and Jane user. Yeah. Well, I mean, using things like the zeitgeist and, and your mindset to do that, I mean, that jumps back to your, your dual brain thing that we were discussing. Absolutely. Um, I, so, cause, but I think the thing, cause you'd mentioned Porsche and what Porsche has done, but for me, you know, I mean, when I saw the, the mono pusher, the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Mont Blanc mono pusher watch that had come out, yeah, that got me excited about a brand that in my mind, I didn't even know made watches. That in my mind, and I mean this, you know, respectfully, that I was just like, oh, I thought this was like a brand that made pens. Yeah. Like, what, what is this? And that's a big thing because you, you know, for me and to be able to, to get me excited about something that is making something that I didn't even know that they did. And then really respecting that. that. I mean, that comes from, you know, your ability to tell that story. Can we, how did the mono pusher happen? Because there's a really wonderful, like, beauty and history behind that piece. Absolutely. But uh, uh, first thing, all these uh, incredible uh, orological watchmaking human exploration about timekeeping yeah. was done on monopusher because all the stopwatches have a single pusher. It's yeah. really, um, and that's why Minerva at the end really stick to this uh, very special complication. And I, I, I found it absolutely beautiful because, uh, again, we come back to simplicity you know mm. it looks so simple but it's so complicated exactly uh, and is rare you know uh, chronographs now are very hot uh, steel chronographs are the most <laughs> you know looked after objects in the watch sphere yeah um and we had this very nice unique one-of-a-kind take on it and that's where we started to 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 build up and then when i saw this uh and made and finished chrono mono pusher with this uh, very big oscillator with 18 uh, uh, golden screws with the particular shape of the bridges with the, all this handwork done. Yeah. Uh, this is outstanding. I mean, they, they were even, when I joined, you know, there was this uh, uh, total um, implication of everyone and 
I mean, there were even parts of the movement that are completely invisible to anyone, except if you completely dis completely dismantle <laughs> the, the the movement that were decorated, you know, just for the sake of it. Right. And and uh, and I found it absolutely incredible. So, yeah, we started to work on on that complication, and we started to work. Uh, I don't know exactly which one you are referring to. Uh, oh, which chronomono pusher? Uh, I've geez the the because the first one we did were on 1858. Yeah, they okay that one. These uh, these pilot inspired uh, yeah. beautifully beautiful military military pieces. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, and I like very much that uh, those movements are so reliable and robust that you can really wear them every every day. Yeah, which is very special because with high complication, very often you have fragility and you really need to take care of how you wear them. So at the end, they spend more time in the safe than on your wrist. How does and that? Just as a side note, what does that do to you? Because there are a lot of people that I know that buy watches and they buy them and then they they take them out and they look at them and then they put them away and. I, I guess I understand that, but at the same time, it's like, but it's going to look so much better on your wrist. <laughs> yeah, I, I fully respect, uh, you know, there are so many different ways of doing this, but sure. myself, I'm a compulsive uh, uh, watch guy, so, yeah. and, and I'm compulsive in, in many things I do, even when I, I buy clothes, you know, I buy something new I need to wear. Very often I wear yeah. before getting out of the shop, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they just pull out the, the sticker and the price and I yeah. get out with that. I, that's the reason why at the end I, I purchased it. So, And I, I like very much a watch that is beautiful, that is a complication that comes from the past, but that you can genuinely wear every day. Yeah. And also there is something very special in, in the, in the high-end watches that we do uh, with the Minerva movement is that uh, the face of the watch is, is, uh, is very refined, but at the end looks quite simple, quite understated, especially on military watches. Mm. And then when you flip the watch and you discover uh, the movement uh, with the collectors visiting Villeray, we often make jokes, you know, it's like cinema. It's, uh, it's so, the, mo the movement is so beautiful. You have so many details. Uh, the beating at low frequency is so magical. is is hypnotical. Like, and you have this double side of the object, you know, a little bit like with cars, you know. You can, you can stop at the external design or you can go into all the small detail of the interiors, of the stitching, of the color, of the, and the engine and how the engine is done. And you have layers of, uh, you know, of, uh, of comp complexity that you can enjoy or you know display uh, as much as you like yeah and i mean something that you've been doing and that also you can see across the entire uh, mont blanc range is like these are not watches that um no one can afford you know i think there are a lot of great watch companies and i'm not you know naming names or making fun of them but so many of their watches they're just watches I'll look at in a catalog and I'm never, ever really going to be able to buy, but it's, you know, the, the entry point for the, the, the watches are really competitive. And I mean, how much of that and the pricing of that goes into how you're designing? Uh, very much because the only way of uh, hitting those price points is having that in mind since the very, very beginning of uh, the development. Mm. And then that, that one is one of the dimensions that drives many of the decisions that you're going to take through the, the process. Right. And isn't the only way to get uh, properly into a very affordable price point, thus not making compromises on, 
you know, the design, the number of uh, nice, small, sexy detail that you put in the watch and so on. You can achieve that price and also deliver the best that you can at that price, which is something we are very much dedicated to in Mont Blanc. Yeah, I mean, because that's really difficult to do these days when I feel that a lot of people would just prefer that, you know, it's it's either the most expensive thing and no one else can have it or it costs next to nothing and everyone can have it. I think it's really difficult to to walk that line that you guys do and it's done really well. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the watches that you were releasing was this Minerva watch that says Minerva on the dial. I mean, this is yes, not the, hiding anything. Uh, yeah. This one is, is a very interesting watch and is really coming out of four years of a uh, very interesting, uh, uh, exciting discussion that I had with many collectors that had, I had during auctions. And, uh, you know, there was, um, uh, yeah, this is a perfect example of this f- funneling or channeling through time. Yeah. You know, you, you find in the archive a movement uh, dating back from 2003 before Richmond acquisition of Minerva. Yeah. Uh, and this object as uh, you know, a life by itself. Movement were still perfect. We just had to put oil again into Are it. Are you serious? <laughs> and uh, and then you say, wow. I, I mean, uh, frankly speaking, I have been and we have been all as a team uh, um, questioning this fantastic stock of components that we have in pristine condition since the beginning. Because you know, can you really keep that in the drawers and not doing anything on it? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. You know, all, yeah. all the we have more than four hundred people visiting uh, Villeray every year, bef- between internal, external journalists, uh, collectors. Sure. And when when we open those drawers, they start to travel in time. You know, and they have star in their eyes. And we were just waiting for the right moment of doing it because, as always in life, uh, the the right time uh, is is all. And uh, we found this movement, and we say, okay, th- that's it. That's the moment. You know, we we just. Uh, shaped uh, heritage which is a very rich sexy yeah. vintage uh, inspired uh, product line coming with this uh, pink salmon dial where we really sampled the color from an original dial from 1940 and uh, all all the piece of the puzzle came together very naturally so we use those one it will be one shot and never ever again uh, we put it in a small size, 39 mil. We use steel, which has always been the material of rare watches. Yeah. We use pink salmon, which has always lately been typical of rare watches because uh, anyone use it again. We add something on the dial to, to be very special. So we rework the indexes and the numerals, put in superluminova super inside. And uh, and then there was this question of all the you know collectors, but why didn't you put uh, Minerva on the dial? Da, yeah. da, da. Answer is so easy. We are Mont Blanc. We cannot uh, you know put something else on the dial, uh, but we engrave all our movement, all our high end watches with Minerva. So it's uh, you know all our high end part of the range is uh, uh, telling the, the Minerva story. But then we said, okay, you know what? This this series is so rare. Is so one shot that yeah. we do it and and we we added this mysterious signature between four and five on the on the railway on the mini tree that is bearing the minerva brand name like this they cannot say anymore that we <laughs> never put on the dial <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing but you had said you said this took four years no no we we found two years ago 
okay. uh, the, the movement in the archive in a small box. And then we started to make a research to understand exactly where they were coming from. And we found this fantastic story because they were produced in 2003. Right. Before the 2006 acquisition of the brand we did. And they were used for a very, very small um, series of watches that were done for feminine uh, models uh, that were called Seconde Authentique. Mm. But really, probably no more than 50 pieces ever sold. And then this movement remained, you know, in this box, uh, this 40 movement, two we kept uh, for uh, after sale. Yeah. And we said, okay, we do a series of 38 and we give a, we, we gave it a second life, a second spin. And, and in this, you know, channeling in time and, and, you know, exchange between elements coming from the past and elements going through the future, it was uh, another step. Uh, it's not anymore. Uh, reinterpreting or taking references or this is really using elements from the past which is uh, very interesting when when you're making designs and stuff like this like how many revisions are you doing over and over again and during that process are you your hardest harshest critic on yourself or, or who is that uh, yes, uh, um, it really depends. It really depends. There are uh, projects that uh, uh, take a little bit more time to shape and demand more iteration, and there are others that uh, fall in place a little bit magically after after very few iteration. And uh, and then uh, for sure, uh, well, we do this, then we share with our CEO, then we share with the group. So there is a number of filters uh, in, mm. b- in between. But the true point is, and is a very mysterious, uh, dark point, is uh, when is the moment to stop iteration, you know? Because yeah. there is a very special moment where anything that you do on the watch, you have, a, you know, 90% risk of taking off value and 10% of putting more. So, exactly, yeah. So there is a cycle of iteration that is virtuous and it it really is needed to to sharpen and fine-tune the, the story of the watch and the face of the watch. Yeah. But then you need to know when is enough. And, and there is, you know, there is really this magic balance between the two, you know, adding and losing. And w- when adding is more than losing, okay, you can iterate. And then there is a moment where if you touch again, you have more chances of losing than adding, so you stop. Yeah, especially when you think about you know how a lot of these vintage-inspired designs and previous designs, there's at least for me, sometimes you look at it and it feels like there was nothing there. Like there was, you know, it, there's so much reduction in the design to make it simple. So it's like, how do you honor that and still improve it? <laughs> Absolutely, and that's why we do very specific. Uh, vintage reinterpretation which yeah. is really creating something new that bears the true spirit of the origin this magic purpose and this magic vision of the of the of the beginning mm-hmm. but that is able of reframing refreshing updating it in such a way that uh, that strength of the origin is expressed with a contemporary language and then it becomes Again, as strong as it used to be at the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, but there is bad, bad vintage design, and unfortunately, there is more and more where That's true. You, you just pretend that you are using vintage signs because uh, vintage sells, and then, uh, you know, it's uh, quick and dirty stuff, and there is a lot. And then there is this magic, uh, uh, I call these uh, fake good ideas, you know, these things that 
look like being very clever and, and well done, but in reality are completely nuts. And, and the biggest of them is redoing an identical watch from the past. Really, you know, you do your own fake by yourself. <laughs> and I don't know why. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know why there are, there are brands who pretend and this is an incredibly virtuous and magic thing. But can you imagine in cars... Uh, a brand that is redoing a model that used to exist in the 80s exactly the same as it was. I mean, nobody will will purchase it. And anyway, you know, in between, there have been so many uh, security elements that you need to add. Sure. And, uh, you know, just aesthetical elements that have evolved in time and that make it obsolete even before you start working. But I don't know. There has been in, in the market because... Because uh, <laughs> there are people who look for shortcuts, you know. Yeah. Okay. I I I even heard this fantastic thing. Ah, you know what? Uh, um, we lost the original drawing, so we had to scan the thing to uh, to redo it. Which is exactly how you know people who do fake uh, fakes do. They, they just <laughs> scan it. They have a three D printer, or you know, that uh, redoes exactly as it was. And where is the added value into that? And yeah. And to me, which is the critical point in what we are doing, what's happening to the value of that watch in time? Project you in 20 years' time, you are at an auction, and in that auction you have the original and the new that are completely identical. Which is the global value of this situation? The global value is a, a losing value, is a, is a lost, lost uh, situation because either the original one is considered the real one, and, which means that the new one will have zero value or for a weird reason that I cannot imagine. <laughs> but the, the new one is considered better than the, the original one and the original one is killed. Anyway, one of the two is killed. You see what I mean? Yes. While if you are able of doing proper, good, you know, reinterpretation which is completely different that means that in 20 years time at an auction the original one will keep all its value and will have even more value because the reinterpretation has kept it alive right. and the reinterpretation itself is considered as a standalone other product with its own proper value and this is a win-win situation where the brand is growing and everything is growing which by the way is what happened in Tudor with vintage watches that are, that are booming, what is absolutely happening now in Mont Blanc with the original Minerva watches. And you have, uh, you know, pilot watches that are sold by Philips by 60,000 Swiss francs, which is quite a, quite an awesome, a nice amount of money or the only watch piece that we did yeah. sold for 100,000 Swiss. That's, that's the whole thing, you know, bringing value to what you are doing and growing that value and growing the emotional bonding and people have with what you're doing and, you know. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that, especially in design uh, and, and watches, when that watch was made of whatever time period that was, it was always about using the best of what was available. Exactly. So to, to do it now, but to make it the way that it was then is actually in some ways insulting to the previous design because it's about using what's absolutely best at that time. It definitely is. And by the way, it's insulting for creatives because <laughs> you don't need any creative uh, director to do that. You don't need That's any true. development <laughs> team. You need just a, a 3D a computer, printer yeah. <laughs> and a computer and a nice scanner. So definitely it's a, it's a, it's a lose-lose situation. Yeah. So, I mean, as you're doing all this, it's, 
obviously it's important to kind of like find ways to disconnect. And what are those things that you're doing for that? I mean, you'd mentioned that you like to fish earlier. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I, I fish, seem, uh, I'm fishing since I am, uh, I think the first time I went fishing with my father was three year old, three and a half. Oh, wow. And, and by the way, it was a fishing competition and I should have stayed outside of the, uh, of the place of the lake where we were fishing and my father lost attention on me. I went in and I fall in the water and uh, my mother killed him. I still remember <laughs> the violence of the, <laughs> of the punishment when you get home. But uh, yeah, it's really something that I have uh, in my chromosomes that comes from my family. My father, grandfather, grand-grandfather were all wow. fishing. And I still have, uh, you know, in, in my in my living room there is the the bamboo fishing rod of my grandfather uh, that is on the wall, you know. So it's also a fantastic world when you can transmit generation from generation. Where you have we have an incredible vintage market for, you know, old fly fishing rods and reels yeah. and uh, and uh, and lures and. Uh, and uh, yeah, is is uh, to me is meditation. Is that's how I meditate when I'm outside in nature and I'm doing this that I like so much, and I'm, you know, chasing, uh, chasing uh, uh, trouts in streams in the high mountain, clean water. You know, the birds, just the noise of the water. Uh, very often you are fishing inside the water with yeah. with waders, and yeah. you become one of the stone of the river. You know, you just have a. This uh, hypnotical, fantastic noise, and you are so much melt into the everything that you have around you that really cleans up your mind, your spirit, and you feel so in a, so much energetic when you when you come again into the real world. Yeah, when I was younger, I went on a fishing trip, and we went to Alaska. Uh, and I got to fish. Here we are. Yeah, I got to fish the Red River and like catch king salmon. And it, it was interesting because to to go and fish in Alaska, you don't really need to be good at fishing. You just need to be there, and you're going to get big fish because <laughs> there's so many. <laughs> so for my 50th birthday, yeah. I am offering myself and my younger brother a fishing trip in Alaska in June. So oh, there you go. And and I I, I dreamed about it all my life, not only for the fishing, also for the adventure side, the discovery of the place, wild life that is there, bears, and uh, and discovering every time a, a new place. Yeah, I've been fishing in in Norway, in Iceland, in Russia, in uh, uh, in Yellowstone, uh, in oh, wow. uh, uh, Scotland, uh, in and each time these. Uh, I, I try to do uh, once a year one of these fantastic adventures where, uh, you know, you, you cut from the world and very often are places where the mobile phone doesn't take. And, yeah. uh, you know, you have this uh, <laughs> bubble of, uh, of freedom and, and, uh, and energy that allows you to, to, to keep for another uh, full year. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, we're starting to, to wrap up. Um, is there, as a side note, is there anything that you want to discuss that I didn't ask or... Yeah, perhaps, perhaps something that is 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 very important also for growing a brand and for designing mm-hmm. is having a very open discussion with your customer and with all the people around you, with all the the passionate people, you know. Uh, and I'm really uh, digging into it uh, uh, since ever, you know, going to auctions, uh, uh, see what happens, see what uh, collectors are purchasing and why and. Uh, uh, you know the specific pieces that they are looking for, and reading all so- social media comments. You know, and the good and the bad, and uh, really? people who agree and people who strongly disagree. I think it's really 
very important to to absorb all of this as a sponge you know because at the end yeah. all these elements will you know they live inside you and all, all of a sudden they collide to give you new ideas to you know uh, make you take specific decision and that's how creatively i work i i absorb as a sponge and then all of a sudden pieces of what i absorb they come together and then give you a specific idea or vision or direction yeah i mean that's really refreshing because there are a lot of brands that um i don't know i don't want to say stubborn but they just would rather pretend that something doesn't exist and they think oh if if we just ignore it excuse me if we just ignore it then maybe we won't have to deal with it. But it sounds like you, it's the opposite in that you want the feedback, the good and the bad, whatever that is, because that's going to inform how you serve the audience. Absolutely. And I very often answer directly on a social platform. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and sometimes I fight a little bit with people you know, <laughs> to, to explain why we did this and that and we took the decision. Da, da, da. And I think it's, uh, it's part of the game. And the game is... Uh, sharing passion for what we do, sharing passion for this yeah. uh, fantastic, unique uh, story of, uh, of mankind and this, uh, you know, magic world of micro-mechanics and, and micro-spaces and balance between emptiness and, and fullness and proportions and beauty. And, and by chance, beauty is something that you don't have to, to have attended uh, Harvard to understand anyone that's true staring at something for three seconds is able of saying if it's nice or not you know then perhaps they will not be able of going into details of it but uh, the the bad side of this is that everyone pretends that uh, he or she is a designer so everyone is very <laughs> opinionated on what you're doing so yeah yeah <laughs> that's that, the challenging part they're a designer because they they put it in their bio right they're just like oh i'm I'm the CEO, creative director, and executive chairman of my company of one. <laughs> yeah. And there is a mysterious reason why, you know, um, uh, I don't know, uh, no one that does a completely different job really challenges a, a finance guy that is proposing, uh, I don't know, a, a particular accounting system. Sure. But on design, everyone pretends to have the solution and everyone <laughs> expressed the solution you know it's it's crazy so <laughs> i think it's the job where you are the most challenged ever yeah because it's a lot of feedback and criticism a lot from, everyone yeah. knows you know from uh, without uh, wanting to judge or insult anyone from uh, you know the housekeeper of the company to the president they all all know exactly what has to be done and they all have a very clear opinion of how this and that should be done so yeah uh, but it's good because it means it really, you know, involves emotionally everyone, which is the magic and the beauty of our work. I, I believe I'm very, very lucky doing what I do. Nice. Well, Davide, it was an honor. It was a pleasure. I, I really can't thank you enough for chatting with me today. This was, this was really special. For me also. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're edited by Brendan Finn and we're produced by Blamo Media. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast and leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. Yes, it really does help. I don't read reviews either, but you know what? Everyone else seems to care about them. <laughs> Want even more Blamo? Head over to patreon.com forward slash Blamo to join the Blam fam and get access to additional interviews, a community slack, special events, and more. And best of all, you're supporting the show. So try it. It feels good. You'll sleep better. You'll be happier. 
Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.